Welcome to the Hopeful Activist podcast. I'm your host, Abby Thomas, and this podcast is a place to hear from people taking action for justice in so many different ways. And today I'm really pleased to bring you a special episode, raising up new voices to share their stories and the stories of those around them. So hello and welcome to the Hopeful Activist podcast. I'm so excited to bring you today's episode with two very special guests and one to join us later on. Welcome to the Hopeful Activist podcast, Ryan and Faith. Hello. (laughs) So sadly, we're missing Julia today, who's been also working with us on a special project, but she's going to introduce her interview later in the episode. We've been working on a podcasting project together for a couple of months now, and we're going to hear the results of that project in this episode we've got three brilliant interviews that Julia Ryan and Faith you've done yourselves and you've each chosen your own guests and you chose really really well we've got a paramedic a community nurse and a sex education specialist to hear from today Ryan and Faith you're part of this Emerge Youth Work Project who we've worked together to create this podcast here in Bradford so Faith tell me a little bit about Emerge um so Emerge is a massive thing for me especially um, and it's a youth um, young people's charity that helps support young people in and out of Bradford and in schools in homes in just their local community and I think it's really special that we've got that place to to go to and help with whatever queries or anything that we have um, and yeah I think it's it gives us opportunities to, to do stuff like this and like if if it weren't for a merge I don't think I'd ever be doing a podcast ever so I, I think it's a really good thing I think everyone should have something like a merge. I agree with you I mean we see the fantastic work that Emerge is doing in the community and I've had the opportunity to work with you too which has been brilliant and and with Julia as well. Um, so you've been learning about interview skills you've been learning technical knowledge over the last few weeks uh, and everything you've needed to produce an interview for this this project. So Ryan, tell me a bit, how did you feel when we started the project and how's it gone for you? Uh, so I guess I just felt like curious just to like sort of find out all this like new information that maybe could be helpful down the line. Eventually just like going through it, it just feels nice being able to know of like what resources I have and how I can use them uh, and produce a good interview. And you've just listened to your interviews and I hope you're as pleased with them as I am. Yeah, yeah, it went well. I just don't like my own voice. No, it is a it is a hard uh, pill to swallow, but you do get used to it. <laughs> I can tell you now after a long time. So, Ryan, we're going to hear your interview first. Tell me who you spoke to and why you chose to speak to them. I decided to do the interview with my sister's community nurse, Sam, and I decided to pick her scenes or she's had... Uh, a lot of experience in it and she's sort of seen like the changes that have happened over time and just like just to see how it's treating her and if it's good so let's hear your interview tell me tell me how you started the interview uh so i started i decided to start by asking sam how her job has been treating her so my job currently is very challenging um i'd say as anybody knows the nhs is stretched but um, I'm well supported by my employees and my colleagues and my manager. 
but I would say it's probably quite a challenging time, even though we're over COVID. There's a lot of children in um, the country, in the world, in this um, area that have got a lot of complex health needs. So, it, yeah, very challenging is would be the word that I'd use. On that note, what would you say has been your toughest moment since you've decided to become a nurse? Um, the hardest part of my job is children who are end of life. Um, there are a lot of advances in children and adults uh, when they come to their end of their life uh, wanting to be at home which is a great thing because if that's where people want to be that's fantastic and we do support them in that but as you can imagine it's quite emotional mm. but rewarding in another sense but quite emotional and that's the biggest drain on my job as a children's nurse I'd say. So why did you decide to become a community nurse? I've always liked children um, I started off as a nurse nurse working with children in nurseries but decided I wanted to advance further. My decision was either a teacher or a nurse and I decided that I preferred the caring side of nursing so I picked to be a nurse rather than a teacher. And uh, what would you have decided to pick if you didn't become a nurse? Good question. Um, a lady of leisure would be ideal but um, I'm not sure. I would quite like to be a police officer. Do you uh, has your opinion of your job changed ever since you've started? So my opinion changed and my thought process has changed when I became a mum. That was the first change because obviously I could empathise a little bit more because I had my own children, um, whereas before I didn't. So I did think about things differently then. Um, and I do think about things more now. Now, now I work, because I work with children with complex health needs, um, I understand a lot more now how hard these families have it with children with complex health needs compared to somebody myself who has children who don't have complex health needs. I would say as a nurse, your thoughts are ever-changing. Has, has your experience as a nurse ever come in handy in your daily life? Oh, yeah. Um, everybody in the neighbourhood where I live know I'm a nurse, so I ask every question when it comes to wound care or my child's poorly. I have friends who text me. My parents think I know everything about nursing because I'm a nurse. Um, I think it's natural that people see that you're a nurse and they think you can help because you want yeah. to help, don't you? It's, it's in your nature. So, um, yeah, everybody wants help. Do you feel like you are being rewarded appropriately for what you are doing? Um, so I feel rewarded in the job role itself. As you're probably aware, there's a massive um, outcry or the looking at the wages for nurses mm. at the moment. And they were striking a few months back, which I agreed with. I didn't do all the strikes, but I did agree with the principles of the strikes. Um, nursing haven't had, um, nurses haven't had a pay rise for as long as I can remember. Mm. And with obviously cost of living, inflation and everything, we've been left behind wage wise. So I do feel that to some degree we're badly done to money-wise. Mm. But that's a national thing and that's a government thing. Uh, and to end it on a positive note, what would you say has been your best time since you've started? Um, just helping all the families that I help in Bradford. I come away most days very pleased and very happy in what I've done. And it, like I say, I look at their lives compared to my lives and my life is so much easier compared to theirs. But I think that makes me personally a better parent because I can come away from some houses I visit thinking, oh my word, how do they cope? How do they do that day in, day out? Whereas my worries and concerns in my life are nothing compared to theirs. Mm -hmm. So I do find it quite rewarding on most days. Mm -hmm. Thank you for being here, sir. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Ryan, and well done on a great interview. So next we're going to hear your interview, Faith. Who did you decide to speak to for this project? Um, I decided to speak to my neighbour, John, who's a paramedic, and he's had a lot of experience in that field of work. So yeah, I decided to talk to him because I find it quite interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Tell me how you started your interview. Well, I started my interview by just welcoming him to the podcast. Hello, good to be here. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Um, So to start off with, I have to ask, what are three words that you would use to describe the journey of your life? Unplanned. Fun. Uh, A third one. Unplanned, fun and adventurous. Yeah, that'll do. Adventurous. Um... So, what is one thing you wish everyone knew about you? That I don't talk all the time, despite (laughs) the rumours. Are you sure? (laughs) Um, So, I recently found out that you used to be a youth worker. So, what made you want to change careers and become a paramedic instead? Hmm. It wasn't really that I'd... I've met lots of people who have always wanted to be paramedics. But it wasn't like that for me, really. Um, I used to work, you're right, doing youth work. Um, and then probably what really happened was the organisation I was working for ran out of money, so they were going to make me redundant. So I needed a cunning plan. And um, one of my friends, who was a police officer, said, why don't you apply to be work for the ambulance service? And I thought, do you know, I could probably do that. Because I drive vans and I've done lots of, outdoor activities and first aid courses so I probably could so that's that was it that was how I came to do it so by chance had, really so you, yeah you already had the first aid like. yeah I'd kind of done things like that but not in a kind of ambulancey way so I find it really fascinating that you've actually like saved people and like saved their families do you ever see it or look at it like that or do you do you not like picture it like that yeah I guess it's one of those things that over time um, if if it's going badly and you're thinking oh I've had enough of this there are times when you think well there are some people wandering around who genuinely wouldn't actually be alive if it wasn't for the for our intervention I suppose so yeah so that there aren't a lot of those people and often you don't get to hear people's stories so you take them to hospital and you've been part of their journey to getting well again but you don't ever know what happens. But in the more dramatic ones, like in a cardiac arrest, there are a couple of where I've thought afterwards, well, they would actually be dead if we hadn't turned up and done our bit. So that's quite cool, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, it's, I think it's very cool that it's quite scary at the same time. It's like you've got the responsibility. Does it ever, like, do you ever feel like, oh, my gosh, this is all on me? I think, given we live in a society where everyone likes to complain if things go wrong, Sometimes that's a little bit difficult. Um, when it comes to someone that's had a cardiac arrest, in a way, it can't get any worse, can it? Because they've already died. <laughs> so you can only make it better. You can't make it worse. So that's 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 probably quite helpful. Yeah, that's a but, good way of thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> it? Um, so, like, do you think being a paramedic is a like riskier and like dangerous job to have? It's potentially more risky than sitting at a desk, isn't it? Because um, we drive around a lot more 
and occasionally have bumps, although fortunately for me none of them being serious. Um, and we do go to patients that for various reasons are aggressive or violent and I have been assaulted a few couple of times. Um, but generally it is a little bit risky but not terrible most of the time. <laughs> um, with the whole like slight like riskiness, do you ever think that you're like drawn to danger in any way of outside <laughs> of the job, like any hobbies or anything that you do? I suppose I've always quite liked adventurous hobbies. I used to do rock climbing quite a lot um, and mountain biking and caving and stuff like that. So I'm a bit fat for caving now. Um, But yeah, I kind of, those, uh, it doesn't, I'm not drawn to the, the excitement, but I quite, I don't mind working in, those situations, I I quite enjoy them, I guess. So yeah. it's like, is it partly like adrenaline, or like what? How would you describe it? Hmm. I think because I've done it for quite a while, I wouldn't say that. Um, I don't get excited because it's a road traffic accident. Because <laughs> normally they're just confusing and and uh, yeah. But uh, what do I think? Is it because it's the adrenaline? No, I suppose there is some adrenaline in it sometimes because you don't know what you're going to so it is satisfying I suppose to deal with a situation and afterwards think well we've done the best we could you know we've done our bit yeah so when you get the calls do you have no idea what any of it is you just get a little bit of information so we have a screen in the ambulance and the call taker will type up what they've heard from the caller and that will come down to our screen so it might say elderly male fallen leg injury for example, or it might say something ominous like car into tree, which is never so good. Um, yeah, yeah. So you have some insight, yeah, not like completely blind. No, and and then if there's any concern that you know the, there's a patient there wielding an axe and they know that, then we'll be told to stand off and wait. So we don't go blindly into, but we don't always know. You see, so sometimes we've been into jobs where where you'd th- everything sounded like it was calm. So we've gone in and then the patient's or a relative has become aggressive or difficult. So you have to be kind of mm, a bit worldly wise, I suppose, and a bit ready to react to a different situation to what you think you're going into. So because of that, do you ever get like nervous to do any of the like calls Mm. and stuff? I think nervous only in the, not so much with the risk bit, more with... um, whether you're going to be able to do the best for the patient, whether you're going to remember everything, and whether it, whether the situation's going to allow you to do it, how yeah, chaotic it's, like it's going to be. Or the whatever. pressure, like. Mm. Yeah. There are jobs, it's, sometimes it's just the jobs that are different that are interesting. Like we had a job once where the patient was having a problem with his heart, but he was on the top of a scaffold. So we had to climb up these ladders to get to him. Oh, wow. So that was quite good fun. But, uh, and then they sent the fire brigade to get him down and offered a helicopter to winch him off, which upset the firemen because they thought they were going to get him down. So, <laughs> everybody was... so that was quite good fun. But it wasn't particularly upsetting, it was just interesting. Yeah. So it's it's the jobs that... Other jobs are upsetting, I think, but not that sort of job, really. That's just good fun. <laughs> so it must be, like, a really, like, quite a tough job to get through. So, like, how do you find the motivation to not, like, give up at all? Hmm. 
apart from I have to pay my mortgage. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I think all jobs have times when you think, oh gosh, you can't be bothered with this anymore. But I think, as we discussed, at, at, at its worst, at least I know that some people are alive because we've intervened. Um, and it is a necessary job, isn't it? You know, some jobs you think, oh, that's a pointless job. <laughs> but we do need to have ambulances. We do need to have paramedics. So it's it's a, and it's a job that everyone knows about. And most, most people are thankful that we're there. So that helps. So I suppose it's got a job that's got value, isn't it? So it's yeah, worth like doing. Knowing that other people like value and are yeah. very appreciative. And they think they know what it is. So they go, oh, well, you're a paramedic. That's very good. So. <laughs> or an ambulance driver if you so <laughs> is there anything that you're like particularly proud of hmm. I think I had a a colleague that I worked with and he was very new and I think it was like our first week and the patient had rung 111 to say they'd just got pins and needles in their chest and their arm and when we got there um while we were talking to him, he went into cardiac arrest in front of us and we uh, defibrillated him and then he came to and then we rushed him over to Leeds and he had, he was, he'd had a heart attack before he'd had his cardiac arrest. So they fitted a little stent in the artery to his heart and he was sat up again in bed before we left. And that was really cool because it had all come together and worked well. So. Yeah, and yeah. you got to and see that. Yeah, we don't. Need, and my mate yeah. was like, "Wow!" And I went, "Don't think it's like this every day." <laughs> but yeah, that was good. Yeah. So, with not knowing like what mm-hmm. happens next, does you do you ever think back and be like, "Oh, that happened. I wonder what." Mm, sometimes, wonder and sometimes we'll ask. I'm quite good at being kind to someone for an hour, <laughs> but I don't feel the need to know what happened afterwards. Always, and that's good because otherwise it'd just drive you mad, wouldn't it? Because yeah, I have to be able to be nice to people I don't know. And that's not too difficult. It's just treat people how you'd like to be treated, really. And I guess it's also quite good that you don't have that overthinking of what happened next because then yeah. that would not help, I don't think. Yeah, sometimes we find out, but um, not always. Yeah, not most of the time, really. So what's, on the other hand, what's like a, a funny event that you've experienced on <sighs> the journey? Yeah, funny event that I can talk about. <laughs> um I did once go to this house and the lady couldn't open the door and uh, she shouted, I've got a gun. Now, I could have at that point called for the police, couldn't I? But in actual <laughs> fact, for some random reason, I went, is it a glue gun? And and she, she had some disability and she'd got the glue gun all stuck on her hands. So we managed to get into the house and that was the problem. So that was a bit of a lucky guess. So that was quite funny. Because they can imagine if I called the police and then they said, it's just a big misunderstanding. It's, it's just, just got a glue gun, gun. it ended up just being a yeah. hot glue gun. Yeah, that's... I can imagine that weird. being a very weird experience. <laughs> and we get called to all sorts of random things. I'm trying to think... I'm trying to think of an appropriate one. <laughs> but I, I suppose people in the omelette service have quite a dark sense of humour because we deal with things that... Well, life and death things, don't we? So we probably laugh at things sometimes that when I tell other people they look a bit like shocked but just because we humour I guess is something we use to help us cope with it yeah yeah because obviously you can't you can't be sad about everything because most of the jobs I go to are sad to some extent yeah there's not yeah most of things are gonna be all 
yeah. rainbows and unicorns. No, so sometimes when yeah. I tell people that I've just met stories, they look a bit shocked and you think, oh, they haven't really got where I'm coming from. Because of course they just go, really, that's awful. And you're thinking, oh, you're just thinking it's quite amusing. But <laughs> not that you're cruel, but I guess it is something we use to cope with what we do. Perhaps. Yeah, because I think you need to have that coping hmm. mechanism. Yeah, and maybe amongst ourselves as workers, we, a bit like the police or the fire service, we have quite a dark sense of humour, perhaps. So, is, <laughs> do you think that police and like ambulance and all them lot have dark sense of humour? Yeah, like I think a... so. Yeah, because we see some horrible things, don't we, from time to time? Although. I think it's often the upsetting things are often not necessarily injuries but how sad people are so relatives when they realize someone's died or yeah. people that are living with a family member who's got really bad mental health problems and it's you can just see that they're just at their wits end uh, things like that those can be more upsetting than injuries where you're going Ooh, how have you done that yes yeah, so it's not necessarily the broken arm no it's the... no it's the it's the emotion yeah yeah so if someone came up to you and asked you how could I become a paramedic mm. and how what would I need to do as in like mentally and like all that mm. stuff like what would you say to help others well because I'm very old Faith, <laughs> and I've been doing this for well, I worked it out about 18 years um, and I didn't come to it very young I came to it when I was in my 30s anyway so I was already I'd done other things first which I think I found helpful because obviously we go to all sorts of people from babies to people in their hun you know over a hundred people that are posh people that are very much not posh do you know what I mean everybody so so from that point of view having you've got to like working with people that's the main thing I think that's probably the most important that and being practical but these days the the knowledge that you need to have is increased so you need a degree now in paramedic science do you not need it? Great. No, I, well I was a, what we called a technician to start with, so I did a, a training course to do that and then I went on as I progressed to do a paramedic course and it was as it was changing over, so I spent some time at training school, about 11 weeks, and then I had to do some extra bits after that and I did a foundation degree, but I've not actually done, uh, now you'd have to go to university and do a two or three year course. So that means a lot of people coming to the ambulance service are younger than in fact, uh, that's partly because I'm old. But, <laughs> um, so you could be qualified, I guess, at 21, perhaps. So it's a lot younger than when I started, which is fine. And, and I think the good thing is, by the time they got to the age I started at, they'll be really experienced, won't they? Yes. And have lots more qualifications. So, yeah. So there's a bit more necessity now to do training. You have to do a degree. But some of that you do on the job, so you'd have placements as well. But the other way, if you don't feel you're ready for that, is to be an ECA, which is an emergency care assistant. So you assist the paramedic and you can drive as well and you get to do some, obviously you're working with the patients as well. Yeah. So um, if you were, didn't feel you wanted to go straight to university, that would give you a good grounding and give you good experience. And, and it only really works if you understand how it all works. So that's not a bad way to do it. Yeah, have you, you get paid then for a bit? <laughs> have you had someone do that with you? Yeah, um, the the guy I talked about who was at that cardiac arrest, he he was a, a tr he came in as an ECA and now he's gone on to do 
some more qualifications and he's got onto a paramedic course and he just sent me a message saying he wanted to be his mentor so that's nice so yeah so that yeah I've seen people move through I suppose it's always sad when they go because it was a good yeah good to work with but I've got someone else good to work with now so I can't complain <laughs> so do you think overall it's it's actually quite a, a good job I think it's a hard job but therefore that makes it a rewarding job as well yeah yeah I think shifts are the thing I find hard and if you don't sleep very well because obviously it has to be 24 hours yeah because people don't have emergencies at convenient times <laughs> um yeah so it's it isn't it isn't I've done easier jobs definitely um but it is a rewarding job and it is a necessary job isn't it so, do you yeah. think it's worth it yeah I think I think so and it's paying my mortgage <laughs> um yeah, so I love the way that you've talked about the journey of where you've started mm. and where you've come and I think that's like it's it's really nice to see that it's not just a oh I have to do it. It's like you do find quite an enjoyment in it. Um so when when you think back, did you ever think you would be a paramedic at all? No. Although I didn't, I haven't, I'm not one of these people that really had a plan. So I went to university to do town planning when I was young. And I was never a town planner. <laughs> but I went to university, it was quite good fun. And then I did lots of other things. So I worked with people learning disabilities, youth work, outdoor pursuits. So I think all those things helped. Um, but no, I kind of stumbled across it. And I can't dislike it that much because I've done it longer than I've done anything else. So must be something in it, must be. <laughs> Right. It's not just the free uniform. It's not just the free <laughs> uniform. Um, right, thank you so much for talking with me today and thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for asking. Thanks so much to John and well done to Faith on another brilliant interview. So I'm really pleased to say that I found Julia. Great to see you, Julia. How are you? Um, I'm good, thank you. So how did you find this whole process of creating these interviews? Um, I think it was a great experience, a one-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I'm so glad I've done it. And I think something that I'll definitely remember. Brilliant. And I loved, absolutely loved working with you all. I think you've done an incredible job. And this is a brilliant interview to listen to. Tell me about the subject you chose for your interview. Um, I've chosen the topic of boys and like men in society and how they differ from girls in this society and also in the past. So shall we have a listen to your interview? Um, yes, so I started off by asking Kirsty about what Step 2 is and what it's about. So Step 2 is an organisation, we're called Step 2 Young People's Health because we work with young people around all aspects of health. So we are, it's our 30th year this year and we got set up by some young people in Homewood because somebody had a pregnancy scare and they didn't know what to do and they didn't know where to go and there wasn't anybody working with young people around sexual health. So they spoke to their youth worker. So step one was finding the problem. Step two was finding somebody that would do the job. So the youth worker found some funding and that's how step two got set up a long time ago. Yeah, and we still do sexual health with young people, but we've also branched out into like healthy relationships. We're going to lots of different schools and we do um, work around mental health. And we've also got a counseling service. Amazing. Um, welcome, Kirsty, to the podcast. Um, Thank you. So I'd like to find out more about you, who you are and where you're from. 
Okay, so obviously I'm Kirsty Ferguson and I live in Bradford with my two boys and a dog. I've got a whippet called Winnie and um, I moved to Bradford by choice. I grew up in Northamptonshire and moved here to study. I studied social work. So my background is um, in social work and I worked in child protection for a good few years. Um, so yeah, and got into uh, working at step two because I'd stopped social work to have my kids and uh, the job came up and somebody suggested that I went for it. So I'd not done sexual health before, but 10 years down the line and I'm still there, still doing it. So it obviously has gone okay. 10 years is a good amount of time. A long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, why did you choose this job? I think sexual health is a really important thing to talk around, mm-hmm. talk about for young people because it's such a taboo subject. You know, all teenagers want to know about yes, it, but course. nobody's... Um, very few young people feel able to talk yeah. about it with their parents, with their... And teachers and so we know that young people get information from sources like the internet which aren't always the most reliable mm-hmm. so it's something that I feel quite passionate about that young people can be educated and educated well and that they're in a space where they're comfortable enough mm-hmm. to ask the questions what do you think about sex ed in schools today um, I think it's it's an interesting one and it has evolved quite a lot. So when I was at school, you know, I think, uh, well, I think back even before that, when my dad was at school, there wasn't any sex ed and it wasn't a done thing. You know, he talked to his mum about changes that were happening to his body and his yeah. mum went, you know and hit him because she was so ashamed that he talked about stuff like that and and my education was not that much different I had a science teacher who said oh I hate this lesson just read the book you know which was rubbish yeah Yeah. and even mine at home my mum was still like she was a nurse but she was still like just read a book which was great but I was dyslexic so I didn't know how to say half the words So I don't want young people to have those experiences. I want them to be equipped and to know the words, to have the language, to know what's right, to know what's legal and to know what's not right and to know when they need to speak up about that. So I've had experience, me and my friends with boys, um, and as a 15-year-old girl, it's not the best. That's why I thought it'd be interesting to talk to you today. Um, what was your experience like when you was my age with teenage boys? So I think I was really lucky, mm-hmm. if I'm honest. Yeah. I had a really nice lot of friends. I used to hang around with a load of lads and they were lovely for the yeah. majority. Oh, gosh. However, <laughs> there were some that you knew were not okay, yeah. that were horrible to you, that, that would say nasty things to you, that would treat you in a way that wasn't acceptable. But I think back to when I was younger and at school, that sort of stuff was sort of, you didn't complain about that mm. much. So, you know, I know most of my women friends have been assaulted one way or another in a club, you know? They've been touched inappropriately or... You know, because that was the, that is or has been the culture. And I think Mm -hmm. nowadays, thankfully, things have changed and women are starting to speak up about these sorts of things, which is a great thing. But I think that has shifted the way that boys and girls interact a little Mm -hmm. bit. 
And so I think for some boys, they're just a bit unsure. The rules have been rewritten yeah. for them almost, and they're not sure what they are. Yeah, that's very true. Um, who is Andrew Tate, and why do boy, why do you think boys look up to him nowadays? So Andrew Tate is a guy, and he's been around for quite a while. So he started out, I think, in Big Brother and got kicked out because of some of the stuff that had gone on. Um, So he's a guy that's got a massive social media presence. He's also set up a university, but I don't mean like a proper university. It's basically a course for blokes to... um, Yeah, to... to, uh, achieve what they or get what they want from life mm-hmm. um but a lot of that is quite misogynistic very masculine and that toxic masculinity yeah. you know the stuff that i've seen people are fighting i don't know why they would do that but um it's all about bravado about being very muscly about being very rich about getting the girls that you want so sort of this yeah so the stereotype of what a man should be or what the stereotype which which is totally wrong you know like i was saying some of the lads that i went to school with were the loveliest guys ever you know but we have this stereotype and we still have it today that men should be uh, they shouldn't talk about their feelings Mm -hmm. they should be strong they should be protectors and us little women should do as we're told in the kitchen. yeah <laughs> uh, and andrew tate openly says you know that he believes all that yeah. that he thinks women need to be protected and that it's men's job to protect them yeah i mean i don't i don't understand that i live on my own with my kids who i'm perfectly fine i can do everything that, should could. yeah <laughs> too right you know i've got to book a hundred things that that women don't need a man to do. Don't need a man. Yeah, and so I think it's it's a, it's an interesting thing that Andrew Tate is selling this idea mm-hmm. to boys, and because of things like YouTube, mm-hmm. and because of uh, social media and stuff like that, he is getting shared, and getting a lot of people I that are, yeah that are very interested and. And the way that the algorithms work in that even if I searched for him in a negative, it still bumps him up people's agenda. So it's a really difficult one. But he portrays that, you know, it's easy to get rich and this is how you should be. And it's super good for everybody to have aspirations in life. (laughs) But... The, the aspirations that Andrew Tate sets for boys are very unrealistic, yeah. very unrealistic, which I think is really hard for boys because if that's what they want... It's not going to be that easy. No. So it's really hard for boys. Really. Um, so we're going to go back in time. Back in the day, men were doing most of the stuff, most like most jobs and women again would be at home um what now that the world is dominated by both when men and women do you think what do you think men's um, role in society is now i think that's a really difficult question because you know like you say if we look back Mm pre-war so we're talking a long time ago but pre-war it was 
women stayed at home for the majority. I know not everybody, but for the majority, women stayed at home. They did, you know, the cooking and the cleaning and looked after the babies. And men used to go to work. Like my nan used to tell me of when she first got married, her boss assumed that she would stop working. And she had to get my granddad's permission. So my granddad had to speak to her boss to say, yes, I allow my wife to work. So it, we've had a massive shift since then. And I think what happened was in the Second World War was that women, because men weren't around, they were off fighting, you know, doing their bit, which was amazing. Uh, the women picked up all the labour jobs, you know. My dad used to have a poster of Marilyn Monroe, who was really famous at the time, with a big um, aeroplane propeller, because that was one of the jobs that she did. I'm not sure she actually did. In the war. Yeah. Uh, so women filled the jobs of men and then when the men came back they were like right we're back we're heroes we've won the war we'll go back to our work and the women were like oh hold up (laughs) hang on yeah and as good if not better than you guys so I think women got a, a taste of what they could do and then that kicked off like you know the women's liberation stuff Um, you know, and it, you move on through history in the 60s and, you know, there was a lot of women lib stuff, which was fab. But then we're at a place now. So if we think about the roles of guys over the last few years, it has changed massively. You know, because they have always been in charge almost. I think not really, though, because in a lot of relationships, it doesn't work like that. But in the hierarchy of our society, they have. And because of that change, you know, men aren't going off to war anymore. So where do they get that? Because they've always gone off to war. Mm -hmm. Historically, for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of years. That doesn't happen anymore, which is great because we don't agree with war and we don't want that to happen. But what are these guys doing instead? And where are they putting their energies? And what have they got to fight for? You know, and it's it's not necessarily about the action of fighting, but what is their passion? And I think that's quite difficult for guys. I don't feel like they've got a space in society mm. as as well defined as they used to have. I agree, yeah. Like boys that play sports or... Yeah, it is really hard, isn't it? Because you get, especially at school, you get mm. fitted into the, are you sporty? Yeah. As a boy. Definitely. You know, are you a neek mm-hmm. as a boy? Are you into things like theatre or musical theatre? And it it feels like they can't combine, which is sad, really, because, you know, we need boys that are playing football one minute and then knitting the next minute. You know, I think Tom Daly, who's the diver, is a really good example of that because he's, you know, proper fit, proper buff in his tiny little shorts, but then (laughs) does some amazing sporting diving manoeuvres and then goes and sits in the stands and knits himself a little hat. So, yeah, I think that's a good thing. What do you think we need to rethink about how we look at boys? I think there's still um, a lot of prejudice. You know, if we were saying this about girls... It, you know, if a boy was saying, why are boys so bad? Or why are girls so bad? We'd be like, hey, boy, you're out of order saying that. Yeah. And so it feels like uh, 
we've still got quite a journey to go on because equality isn't there yet. So for a girl to cry in the playground, her friends would come round and go, oh, I'm sorry, you okay? <laughs> if a boy was to cry in the playground, he would just get ridiculed and taken the mickey out of forever. And so it feels like we've still got a way to go with equality and and we aren't equal yet and we yeah. still have got a long way to go. But from the guys that I know, yeah, there are loads of guys with some quite worrying attitudes, particularly mm-hmm. towards girls or people who aren't sort of your straight, white, you know, person. Yeah able-bodied you know there's all these sort of stereotypes that or how you fit into into being a boy or fit into being a girl but I think for boys that it's just a really tricky place to be at the minute how that will change in my opinion is for boys to start to be able to stand up and to speak up but at this age as a teenager that is such a big ask for a boy because they will take so much flack and and I look at it from a perspective as an adult and when I go to meetings about violence against women and girls it's just full of women where are the men and it feels like the men are not quite the adult men not just boys the adult men aren't willing to champion our cause partly because they're not the ones getting killed they're not the one getting beaten so i understand why they're not there but it feels like we just need a few good men to start to make ripples to change the way that things are for them hopefully we do get that for the boys i think we will i'm hopeful (laughs) i am absolutely hopeful that I will look back in 10 years time and it has moved massively from when I was at school 20 years time 20 years ago you know 10 years from now I think yeah I'm going to look back and there are going to be massive changes Mm -hmm. and there are going to be boys standing up and shouting out and being proud to be a boy in their identity no matter what that is Mm -hmm. and nicer to girls yeah that's what we need in this generation but um, it's been so great to talk to you. And where can people find out more about this if they wanted to? So Step 2 has got a very good website. Mm-hmm. So we are, um, if you just Google Step 2 Bradford, that will bring it up. We're also on our social media. So we've got um, Instagram, which is Step 2 YPH, Young People's Hell. Uh, so have a look, check us out. We're on Twitter, Facebook, um, hopefully TikTok soon. but. Who knows? I'm not dancing for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much, Kirsty. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Well, I have to say I've been incredibly impressed with you all. You've thrown yourselves into the learning and you've pulled off some great interviews. And I hope that we'll be hearing a lot more from you all in the future. If you'd like to find out more or even support the work of Emerge, you can visit emergeonline.org.uk or you can click on the link in the show notes. I'm going to be back with another Hopeful Activists episode on the 19th of May with author Mekdes Hadis on why we should think again about Christian mission trips to other countries. And if you've enjoyed this episode, especially if you're new to the podcast, there's over 100 episodes in our archives, including last week's episode on homelessness with the incredible life story of Chris Ward, who, having experienced 
homelessness himself, now helps people who are experiencing homelessness and addiction. And also in the interview is John Kurt from Hope Into Action, and we discuss why neither of them give money to people who are begging. So you can find out what they do instead in our archive. So thanks again to Julia, to Ryan and to Faith and also to the Jerusalem Trust who funded part of this project and of course to Emerge and to Ree and George who are the Emerge workers who've done a fantastic job supporting us in this work. Thanks for being with us today. Mm